Welcome to episode 27 of Redboard Rewind. I'm Spencer Luganbule, and today my special guest is a young gun handicapper and NHC final tableist, Eric Bilek. Today we discuss three races from last Saturday's Late Pick 5 carryover at Aqueduct, and we discuss some angles like why using jockeys in your handicapping can be useful, and how winning and then dropping a horse in for a claiming tag may not always be a red flag. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old story. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Eric Bilek. How are you, Eric? I'm excellent. Uh, it's a beautiful Monday in Minnesota. It actually is really nice. It's been 40 all weekend, so it was outside pretty much a good amount this weekend. And played some horses, didn't have a lot of luck, but uh, you always can learn from that. A hundred percent. It was gorgeous here in upstate New York. Good weather for disc golf, something that I was trying to get out to and do today, but didn't, unfortunately. Hopefully I'll get out tomorrow to hit the links. One of my uh, roommates from school... He's gotten really into disc golf over the past year. The joke was that he was never on social media. He's like, man, <laughs> keep it off my phone. Just some waste of time, whatever. And then one day, one of my friend's wives gets a notification that your friend has joined Instagram. And we send the screenshot to him saying, oh, we see you're on Instagram now. And we look at the account. It's just him like trying to be a disc golf influencer. That is hysterical. Why don't we get off to some quick, easy questions? The first one... I ask all my guests, what is your process when handicapping a race from top to bottom? Uh, well, every PP is kind of constructed a different way. But really what I do is I kind of go from most most PPs in the United States are from most recent race at the, at the top and then the furthest races at the bottom. And then there's some sort of left to right order with them. Mm-hmm. So really what I do is I kind of first glance I do is I look at the, the prior running lines in the races, I go running lines first, uh, then kind of see what the horse's running style or what the final figure was. And then I go back to the left to see, was there layoffs? Is this like a second off the layoff? Uh, the race distance, uh, race class. And basically what I try to do here is when I'm, re- I'm so old school, I actually like printing my PPs, but if I see something that's different or significantly different from today's race, like, say, for example, you see a big class drop. I will make a downwards zero in the PP, if this makes sense. Like, say it's going from an allowance race to a claiming race. I will make a downwards zero and say this is a class drop. Same thing with trainer changes. I'll circle those. Equipment changes, I circle those. Uh, first-time geldings, things like that, I circle those. Make sense? Totally. I do the same thing. Like, when I go through the class levels, I put an S for a stronger race, W for a weaker race. Just that way that I can quickly flip a page of a PP and just like get the screenshot, even yep. though I may have handicapped the race, you know, a couple like a couple days ago, and now it's race day. I just instantly know like, oh yeah, this is the class dropper going turf to dirt with you know second off the layoff. Like I try and like write as many miniature notes in the PPs as possible. I did that for a while, but the problem was is that when I was going through the races, sometimes I would miss stuff, mm-hmm. so I just. I did arrows and circles and start simplifying it all. And then I, I've got like, some people have got a big color scheme. I basically, I've always been a blue ink fan. I use blue ink on my PPs and black for any changes. 
scratches, things like that. But blue ink kind of sticks out a little more than black on black, which sometimes you can get lost. The things I realize kind of when you go back and look over the races, a lot of times when you miss a horse, yeah, there's times you wouldn't have used a horse, but a lot of times it's because you miss something small. And so if you can just make notes of the things that may have improved the horse's performance to win the race or finish second, whatever, to blow up your bet, I just try to find those things that, from my experience, this is why that horse may have won. Now, something I don't usually ask, but for me, it takes me quite a while to still handicap a race even. Sometimes it'll take me half an hour plus. Do you tend that you're shorter than that or longer? This is a good question because I've been at the NHC five times. The fifth time was the best time I've ever had before. And Mm -hmm. for that, I was probably spending 15, 20 minutes a race. But in a normal day, I might spend five at most. Really? Um, Okay. So historically, I'm a better player in contests, like $2 win plays, contests, or cash. And I'd say cash. And so 15 minutes on a day because I'm going through making sure. I guess on days like the NHC, because I know there's a lot more to gain. It might sound bad, but if you finish top 10%, you're getting 10 grand. Yeah. Uh, if I have a top 10% day of all time, that's not 10 grand for me. Okay. Which it's, is fair. It's not, it's not, it's not five figures, but it's just one of the things where the chance to granted also top 10%, you get 10 grand. Also, if you win, you get 800,000. It's like, I think I've got a little more to gain in a free roll like the NHG where I want to make sure to take my time because once you get there, like during a normal racing day, I'm not focusing on eight tracks. I might be focusing on two or three tracks. So I actually have time between races, to look at the next race or construct bets. NHC is just a total come at you as fast as possible. At some point, you've got all eight tracks running at once. On a normal day, I'd say it's five, five, ten minutes, maybe max for a race. If I'm watching replays of a race or don't have don't have a note for anything like that, it'll take me a little longer. But I'd say on average, it's five, ten minutes race if I've got everything or friends have stuff done ahead of time and we share notes, things like that. I know that what you had kind of been mentored up by JK and the Matias brothers. What was that like when you first started out with racing? It's a... It's a process, but I think it's a time-proven process. I don't want to give too much away, but what they have done over the years and what they've made their money off of, I think it works. I'm a legitimate believer in, in, in bias, and you learn a lot with that. And The track I've tried to do the most when I was a fall behind is Hawthorne in Chicago, and that's my highest handle track for the past three years every year. You wouldn't think that, Grant, I used to live in Chicago, but you wouldn't think that Hawthorne would be the track that I look forward to the most. It's interesting that you say that because – I think that a lot of people, they like to just bet the major tracks. But for me, even when I first started out, I loved playing tracks like Mountaineer on a Monday night because that was the time that I had off from work and stuff like that. Sometimes those races are not that they're more fun, but it's just it's more interesting when you play the lower level tracks. Not everyone on social media is talking about them. And then you could be like, oh, I made this bet and hit this exact. And everyone's like, why are you playing that track? Well, it's because the tr- that's the track that I make the money at. Yeah. Kind of along that same page, one of my favorite tracks all year is Delta Downs because the timing works great. It's after work for me. I can I can play when I get home if I've got nothing else to do. It's it's all dirt racing, which I like. And the thing about five thousand dollar claimer races at Delta Downs compared to ten thousand dollar claimers at Aqueduct is the horses that are running for five thousand at Delta or Hawthorne are probably five thousand dollar horses. Mm-hmm. The horses that are running at ten at Aqueduct, a lot of times there's a lot more question marks because of prior performances. Do they have an issue? Are they not sound, but they're still racing. There's a lot more question marks of those races compared to a smaller track that just has five ten thousand dollar horses, and that's the end of the, end of the story. It's just there's still horses that can run. Sometimes they're even more formful because there's less questions about them. Now I know too that you're one of the handicappers that believes in the importance of a jockey more than most. What kind of brought that lesson around? So I used to not be a jockey guy. 
it was it was like I'm betting the horse and not betting the jockey. It's kind of like are you betting the football team because of the quarterback or the coach? Exactly. Um, the more and more that I played, the more and more I noticed myself getting beaten races by the same jockeys. Is that just because I didn't like the horses or they're moving up horses? And so I really started coming along to that there's certain jockeys that I really just think move up horses or move up on tracks a lot more than others. Some examples, Paco Lopez, like his ROI in the past year is over $2 for every or every $2 you buy, I think is at two twenty five right now. Mm-hmm. I think that number is even higher at Gulfstream. Uh, some of my biggest winners or most important winners in Vanshee were Paco Lopez. One of my biggest winners of all time was him in the Classic called Del Caribe with that 70 to one horse. Um, I think some of the riding he does is very dirty. If we were under a class one jurisdiction, he'd probably be banned until he's banned. I still think he's a good rider as dirty as he may be. If, if he's not getting penalized, I don't want to call it gamesmanship because it's a lot more life and death, but he's riding and he knows how to ride these tracks and where to put horses. Um, another example that's not a positive ROI. Grand, there's not a lot of jockeys that have positive ROI angles is Tim Thornton at Delta Downs. Um, mm-hmm. I knew him from his days of riding in Chicago and, he just understands how to ride the bullring seemingly a lot better than other jockeys out there. Another one is, I don't want to say I'm starting blindly bet him on the turf, but Umberto Raspoli, I'm sorry if I butchered the pronunciation, but he's almost at a $3 ROI on the turf in California this year. He's been fantastic uh, so far. And so it's just things like that. It's like, am I blindly betting them? No, but give me Joe Rosario on turf over. I'm trying to think who instead of on turf. Give me Rosario on turf over. I don't know. Irad? Uh, no, Irad's good on turf. Like, I'll take him. Give me, give me, it's like, if, if a horse is between Eric Cancel and Irad, give me Irad all day. But it's just yeah. one of the things where you have to learn certain riders' tendencies. And a lot of times, the good riders are going to be on the best horses. But sometimes, when the best riders are marginal horses, they're going to move them up. And sometimes, they might get a little more ignored in the window. It's like, give me, give me Rosario any day over Javier Castellano. It's just, I think, how they've been riding recently. Joel puts horses on a much better spot than Javier has. Um, Johnny V is great. He's beaten a lot of bets, and sometimes I think he might not go to the holes they used to go to the holes, but that sometimes it's just like I notice myself getting beat up by Johnny V sometimes, but is he in that class where I think he's above everyone else? I think he's very, very good, but is he elite that will move up a horse? Um, jockey that Jonathan will di- f- probably fight tooth and nail with me to death. On this one is, I think Mike Smith is an absolute money burner. Um, <laughs> the number of times he is, I, I I see a lot more times where he moves down a two to five horse instead of moves up a twelve to one horse. Granted, I feel like the numbers numbers might say differently, but the times I've been alive to two to five shots with him on them and they don't win is a lot more than the times I've been moved up on a twelve to one with him. And that that could be a fair assessment. I know for me, I use DRF Formulator a ton, and even before I look at a card. I go and look at the jockey standings, and if it's a track I haven't been following much, I just look, I see what the average win mutual is, I see who's hitting at above a 20% rate, and I go and look at the last 10 days, last 30 days, and I make notes of streaks and stuff like that. If Joel is, you know, 5 for 15, and Jose Ortiz is on a downswing, and he's 2 for 17, I'm going to start upgrading Rosario a little bit more that day than I am going to upgrade a jockey who we all know is going to just take money just by a name basis. Yeah, the one that for me was the, the pet jockey for uh, pet jockey sounds weird, but the jockey that I would always just say if he's riding, I'm probably gonna might just bet him to win just because I know he is. For a while, Junior Alvarado had a ROI that was positive over his entire riding career. It was my dad's uh, favorite jockey. One, 
he's he's one of mine. I think now that he's in New York and I'm not as much of a fan as New York racing, racing even though we're going to talk about New York racing, that I'm not as it's not, I just don't find New York racing that appealing to me anymore or as much as I used to. But for a while, he had an ROI over $2. So technically, if you went to the track and just bet him to win in every race, if you bet him for every race, every road, you'd, be a, you'd have more money than you started with. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people, as you do say, they say, look at the horse, not the rider. I think that jockey switches come into a lot of different stuff. I'm handicapping Gulfstream right now for Thursday, and uh, Jaramillo's on a horse, and it's a, jo- and it's a jockey upgrade. And when you look at the trainer stats, two of the last – three wins the trainers had have been with Jaramillo on in the saddle. So to me, this is an upgrade, even if the percentages aren't exactly correct. Yeah. I guess for me, I don't look at it down to that detail in terms of like jockey streaks like that. Most of the time, cause I'm not trying to look at a race for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to more construct wagers for 30 minutes compared to handicap for 30 minutes. I won't get down to that granular detail, but a lot of times I'm just trying to see who are the, who are the money riders and who are they on? I want to get back to the mentoring by Jonathan and the Matias brothers. What's the most important lesson you think they taught you? Bet a little went a lot. Uh, do I always follow it? No. Sometimes they make some dumb bets. Everyone's made a dumb bet, but I've also never made a bet I thought was going to lose. I guess hedging, you can maybe say that you're making a bet because you think you're going to lose. But I think at the end of the day, that's a little different. But I don't know anyone who's out there that's ever made a bet that they thought was going to lose. And yeah, granted, I might, might bet too many combinations and lost money or made a bad bet on a bad horse but at the end of the day i still thought there was some value there so paul zoe said bet a bet a a little to win a lot and that really kind of opens your eyes to playing for value as much as playing for being right what's one lesson you think you had to learn on your own after they had given you the stepping stones to become a good handicapper i think betting like i said before is that now when i make a i'm playing multi-race bets which is probably the majority of my play just between uh working life things like that that it's easier to go through on a pick five and have it be my action for the day if i go through it at lunch at work or on the weekend throw it in at 10 11 a.m before i got stuff to do for the day i get my action that way it's just hard to play uh, verticals when you're you're busy you're working when you're out doing errands or out having fun with your friends it's just at this point in my life i've got more than horse racing and sometimes i just learned that verticals are the best way to do it yeah i don't know does it make sense? It makes sense. For me, I have a a lot of different literature on ha- handicapping, and I've always said, I think it was Kerry Fodius, I hope I'm saying the last name right, he said, if you don't have a positive ROI in win bets, you shouldn't even be touching the other pools. But I can get what you're saying. If you don't have time to be so invested in the vertical pool or in the win play show pool, and all you have are the pick five pools, and you have the proper bankroll management, you still can be a proper bet and make the proper money yeah i like i've told i said this with pete is that it'd probably be more of a win better the tracks i played a lot more on that bet a lot more win the the pools weren't smaller not that i'm draining the pools but smaller pools just mean there's probably a little more volatility in there and i'm not exactly really sure what i'm going to get for the final odds so it's hard when it, your your main track is hawthorne you really do like betting win there but sometimes your horse might go from Five to one, you bet it with a minute to post or zero minutes to post, and go off at five to two, three to one, something like that. And I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not a computer that says this horse should be three point seven to one, but I think the horse's value at five to one. Do I know what I bet him at three to one? Maybe not. I think that's one of the reasons why I don't bet win as much. Did you ever try doing the uh, building the bet line like some of like some people have done, like? X horse is going to win X amount out of a hundred. This is their percentage, which makes yeah. This... So I actually used to kind of. 
for days where I was playing online contests, I would kind of have a, a program that kind of created the bet line for me mm-hmm. where I would, using some different factors, I would make, it would do it for me, but it was a lot of manual inputs and a lot of time. Um, it worked well for me sometimes because one of my biggest winners in the NC this year was off the fact that I thought the the final figures to the horse on a couple of different figure scales were not that much different than the favorites in the race and the horse that went off at 40 to 1 and 1. Was that so, the uh, Golden Gate race? It was. Yeah. Did I bet the horse because he was 40 to 1? I bet him because I'm like, hey, I think this horse run. I'm a big believer in speed figures and the horse's figures were not that far off the, the favorites. So for me, what did it matter to me that the horse was 40 to 1 even though the cap is 21? Not at all. Like Even if the horse was probably 15 to 1, I would have taken it in the, in the position I was in. So it sounds like to me you... Even if the horse is a couple points below on the buyers, you believe in the horse improving enough that he'll excerpt the favorites who might have the better speed figures. Not necessarily that it's going to improve or just could just be a different trip, different bias, different pace scenario. I think buyers are a great figure, but they're they're really they should be just a final pace number grand. They're not really that way with turf racing now with slow yeah. paces quick and things like that but if a horse is five to ten points and has i think some legitimate reasons why it's five to ten points lower and maybe if it runs back to a little more of a, a normal race without excuses then yeah that's that's why i take i take it for that at that probably take the horse at a different different price and than if it was just if it didn't have excuses i 100 percent get what you're saying there now the races we're going to go over are five seven and nine from this past saturday's late pick five with the carryover you played in the pool. What was kind of your idea in the th- those three races? Did you have a short skinny ticket or was it more you were very spready? I had a, well, the the one thing in the sequence is that Mr. Buff was a, I don't know what his final odds were, but it was, a, I think, the eighth race. Mm-hmm. Nine, it was, it was yeah. a feature. Yeah. It, um, he was going to be two to five on the day. I'm not exactly sure what his final odds were. That horse is pretty much was a single for me. I had one ticket where I was backing up with him. Basically, the majority of my, my, my money was going through him. Then the seventh race, I had an opinion there. So actually, if I look at the amount total I bet on the day, that horse had just as much money single to him as Mr. Buff. We'll get to that when we talk about the seventh race, but I had kind of two opinions I was trying to have win. Uh, the fifth race, I thought was a little more wide open um, than maybe it ran on paper. So I, um, I'll get into the horses I use there, but I thought that one was kind of a little harder. The second race, I thought that one was... Kind of down to a couple horses, four horses technically. Third race, that's where I really liked the horse. Fourth race was Mr. Buff, and I thought the, the, the final leg was wide open. The thing, if you look at that kind of back of the charts, some people might say it's different, but I think there was a slight maybe speed bias on the day. Two-figure makers I really respect. Um, Craig Malkowski of Timeforming and Paul Matisse, who does his own figures, bets his own figures. They have said this aqueduct. I think aqueduct in the winter is always hard to make figures for, but they said this winter is been even harder than usual paul talks a lot about track changing and just through the methods that he has used for his entire career and has made a good amount of money off of he's like this track is not even i don't know what they're doing with maintenance i don't know what's going on with the track condition but it's just not a uniform track from start to finish i think it's a hard track but i think the results on saturday for my bankroll were not great but at the end of the day when you have these large carryovers and you think you've got a couple opinions you've got to take your shot because if my opinions are right it's a probably a different story i'm not losing some on the day but maybe winning a lot more than i bet what do you say we get started then with this fifth race it was the start of the late pick five it's a sixteen thousand dollars a two lifetime going six and a half on the dirt what was your start with this race so i think first pass i actually went through i said this could be an all race um 
when I go through the races, I kind of figure out, all right, like, does this race have potential for chaos? And I've, I've got no problem using the all button. I understand why people don't use it because you're, you're spreading out equally. Um, I've got some tools I built in certain situations where I actually will try to use an all, but it, have it be a modified all where I might have the favorite for $3 and have the long shots for 50 cents for a combination. Mm-hmm. I ended up using the horses I use as A horses were uh, two Max Revolution, three Takeoff, four Septimus, Septimius Severus, number five, No More Miracles, number six, Beachfront, and number seven, Preternatural. What did you like about the number three takeoff? Because to me, this horse was just an automatic toss right off the rip. Um, 31, it's kind of hard to say I'm going to really love that horse, but mm-hmm. uh, the prior race um, was in the slop with a different trainer from Carlos Martin to Mr. Tornas. I don't know. Yeah. Never really heard of the guy before, but sometimes I think a slop race is a little more allowing to throw out. In the two races before that, the horse actually was against the track from a bias point of view. One time it was on a dead rail. The other time it was, was chasing wide on a gold rail. I thought six and a half might be a little better distance than seven or eight. Like it ran the, the two prior times. Grand, this is off a layoff, but when you're you're in a big sequence like this, if you hit a 30 to one, he actually went off at 17 to one. But if you hit a horse like that to start it off, you're in an excellent position right there. And I didn't really love the eventual winner, um, George Weir horse of four based off everything I saw. I just figures weren't that much off compared to the other favorites in the race. So that's why I threw him in there. And I understand that some people might say he's an automatic toss, but one lesson that just a friend taught me once is never talk someone off a long shot that they like. Kind of, I kind of use that mentality. If there's a long shot I find minorly intriguing, guess what? I'm probably going to use him because while that horse might be 17 to one on the day uh, in the win pool, he might be 30, 40 to one in the pick four pool or pick five pool. Sorry. No, 100. percent For me, it was not so much an all race. The number four, Septimius Severus, I thought just dropping down to where he was the last time he was even close to this level was the Gulfstream race in the slop, and he ran a 65, which I thought was more than enough to take it down in this race. I thought Max Revolution, I like the jockey change to Camacho. They are 27% with a positive ROI, him and Eddie Baker, Barker, sorry. And then No More Miracles just seem to like be the horse that even though the level people say are so hard to do, the non-wearers a two-life, non-wearers a three-life, the horse was definitely on an upward trend, and I thought 9-2, to two, Maybe the four takes all the money, and this horse can be an overlaid eight, nine to one. Yeah, yeah. I struggle with these sixteen thousand. Like I said before, like this is these are probably the races I struggle the most with the Naira. The winner is a class dropper. He's probably a legitimate class dropper. Just wasn't of the allowance class. An allowance race at Parks is not, sometimes not that much different from a twenty, thirty thousand dollar claiming race in Naira. So mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty wide open, or a little more wide open. But when I did my tickets, I ended up skinning it down to basically two through seven and two th- I, do, I was gonna say if i were to do this again i'd probably bet the same exact thing like they say hindsight's 50 50 but what i thought it was just i thought it was a little more wide open i was wrong different day different track i could be my opinion of it being a little more wide open could be correct now you said you went two through seven were they all a's did you make a couple b's no those are all a's i did have one ticket that used all with basically all my top selections i just i didn't love the the Five to two favorite or two to one favorite, whatever he was. Um, the Weaver horse, I didn't love him. So I thought he had a chance to lose just based off his prior performances. And I thought maybe I was getting a little more equity by 
granted, people say if you don't like the favorite, don't use them, but it's also in a carryover. I think there's a lot more value to hitting a carryover because there is added value because I don't know what this final number for the sequence was, but I'm, I think it was close to being a 0% takeoff bet. I think um, you're right. On a normal day, would I use this horse? Probably not, but I also know when I've got another opinion come down on down the road, I don't want to miss it because of a horse that I thought had a chance, but I just didn't like the price of. For me, I decided to go with the five, no more miracles. I just like the improvement. I just, like we had said, the four being a drop down, you don't know what you're going to get, especially with the parks coming back to uh, the Naira circuit. We don't really know where the correlation is. He has to also get back to a decent number from a, from a couple of races that were back, you know, February of last year, which is a long, long time ago. Let us see if Eric can advance in his pick five, or if I can get the number five, No More Miracles Across the Wire, right now. They're off, and it is Septimius Severus who goes out for the lead. Beachfront is there, along with No More Miracles, and on the outside, it is a preternatural. Down at the rail, the gray union-wise runs in a fifth. Then it's takeoff next in sixth. Let's go Mets on the outside runs in seventh. I'm Elmer J. Fudd is next in eighth, followed by Max Revolution. At the back of the pack are Talent Scout and Running Violence. The favorite, Septimius Severus, ran the opening quarter mile in 22 and four-fifth seconds. In front here by three-quarters of a length. With no more miracles in pursuit in second. And Beachfront on the outside in third. It's a half dozen lengths. Back to Union Wise and Max Revolution. Then Preternatural. Talent Scout has made his way now up into six down towards the rail. The field is at the top of the stretch. The half in 46 and two. Septimius Severus and no more miracles. They are one, two inside the 316th pole. Septimius Severus. Narrowly over no more miracles. Beachfront is third. Max Revolution is fourth as they head for the 16th pole. Septimius Severus in front. No more miracles on the outside. Beachfront is third. Manny Franco gets his third win today on Septimius Severus. And the number four, Septimius Severus, the favorite, gets it done. Paid 660 with a 70 buyer. Let's break down this race, Eric. What do you think? Uh, I kind of messed up the format of the show, but I think what I said was. I didn't love the horse, but at the end of the day, I used him in my bets just because I thought he was good enough, and maybe the track carried him a little bit. I don't know. Once all the figures, once all the work's done and you see the, the numbers come back, um, you might see what happens. Maybe him getting gelded was the magic trick. It's hard to say in these in these $16,000 claimers at Nyra what's going to happen sometimes. For me, and this is kind of, we'll see later in the show exactly what, Manny Franco seemed to be having himself a heck of a day. Do you ever... Like, I know you said you do include jockeys. Do you ever see a jockey who wins, like, the first three or five races and are like, okay, I'm going to upgrade him the rest of the day? Sometimes the thing that I find hard about that is are they on the best horses or do they actually have a good ride where they may, may realize that there's a gold rail or speed's good on the turf today. It's stuff like that that I look for more. Like, for example, at Hawthorne sometimes this year there's there's actually a pretty good rail there, and the jockeys that I would notice that were getting the rail, I'd probably, even if they weren't winning the races, I'd probably – try to move those guys up a little more compared to the guys that were wide for no reason. I know Jim Miller at Hawthorne, sometimes I text him like, what is this jockey thinking? <laughs> it, uh, it just, it's like the rail has been good for three days and he's going wide with a closer. It's like stay on the rail if there's room. And a lot of times there is room. Do you think a lot of times that the lower percentage jockeys, like they just seem to be making the wrong move and it just kind of, you almost put them like on a list. Okay. Like until this guy figures out what the bias is, I'm not going to bet this guy at all. It's almost like you're almost. No, no. I, th I think sometimes it's, it's even, it's even the better jockeys that do it too. 
I sometimes just think that some of the jockeys are just clueless to it. But I don't want to say that's true, but sometimes you see plenty of good jockeys going to a dead rail. Like Andy Sterling is notorious for tweeting a jockey saying, why are you going to a, to a dead rail? And, and sometimes the jockeys respond on Twitter and they're like, thanks for letting me know. But it's just one of the things where sometimes when the trainer is giving you instructions to save ground, do you listen to the trainer do what you want to do? Because if you lose a great race saving ground, like Carl Brogue, we're going to remember what podcast he was on. I think Jason Bean. He said he'll never get mad at a jockey for saving ground on the turf. Granted, that's not the same on the dirt, but if, if a trainer says do this and you want to keep riding for that trainer, if, if it's not the the owner picking the jockey, I think you listen to the trainer because they're the ones that's that are employing you for those that minute and a half, two minutes, whatever it is. I mean, there was a famous – I worked for the Bet Squad at Saratoga. There was a famous scene last year or two years ago where – Javier didn't save ground on a horse for Chad Brown. And one of the guys texted me and they're like, Chad from the winner's circle is literally chewing Javier out. And he's like, if they come out, he's still chewing him out. Like this is the craziest thing they've ever seen. And lo and behold, here comes Chad and Javier and just in his ear, the whole way back to the jocks room. And I looked at the next race and I'm like, Oh, he's riding for him again. This should be fun to see exactly what happens. So Chad joined Twitter recently. And I don't know if he was actually doing it or someone else's, but he actually had a funny, tweet about it was one of those reaction videos or reaction tweets so he's like me when my jockeys don't save ground or some guy going crazy um, oh i've i've seen it's hysterical it's yeah so good for him good for him realizing maybe some things that people don't find not necessarily acceptable but they notice and when you're in the, the spotlight a lot of things get noticed for good or bad oh 100 percent. i mean even but if you watch all of chad's horses chad i don't even know if it's by instruction anymore a lot of his horses they they just stick to the rail. They're like glue on the rail on the turf. So when all of these, you know, Sister Charlie horses, these horses get every once in a while beat by a half a length or everything, everyone says, oh, you should have been outside. And it's like, well, the jockey's not going to do that when Chad Brown is the trainer employing them and they and they know to stick to the rail. The rail just didn't open this time and you guys got unlucky. Everyone looks at it like such a, it's like selection-oriented, results-oriented. You got unlucky one time and the horse was still like seven to five, six to five. Yeah, it's. I think, I think track is really not necessarily open my eyes to it but you see these horses that travel 100 feet farther than the turf and get beat by six inches mm-hmm. um it's kind of crazy if you think about it but that's horse racing and i've never do i use the like thoroughgraph to this day i'll glance at it sometimes if i got a question but i think the one thing they always did right they always did right with figures on the turf was if you're going wide we're going to give you a big, bigger figure because you're losing ground yeah um, i've i've heard that too before but but then on dirt now it's like a lot of the times the rails are kind of dead and going wide might be the place where you want to be. And guess what? That horse is going to get a better figure on dirt being on the good part of the track compared to the horse that's on the rail. So I don't use it all the time, but I always saw them including ground loss, especially on the turf was uh, something to look at. Now I know you had bet two through seven in the pick five in that last race. You survived with the four, which is the least likely horse I'm sure you wanted are there any horses that you would take out of this race that you would be looking forward to better and think got a weird trip? The one that I thought was kind of interesting initially was Talon Scout, the 11. He was kind of on that initial pass-through list. And looking at the connections, Jockey, I just ended up using only on my all ticket, but that horse is extremely wide all race. Um, ended up losing by 11 lengths, but sometimes 11 lengths on the dirt is a lot better than it might appear, especially on a day where... A lot of times speed biases go go hand in hand with good insides, not necessarily a good rail, but a lot of times they go in. If speed's been good, it's a lot of times because the horses are not sitting five wide and getting to the lead. So I, I think a, a quick glance at the charts that speed might have been okay this day and a horse like that being 
the, the notes say eight wide on the backstrokes, four wide on the turn, five, six in the upper stretch. Five, six wide in the upper stretch. If that if the inside was good this day, I think that horse is definitely like a worth a second chance next time it runs. I think it's always interesting. A lot of people, when they look at PPs, they want to see ones and twos, and sometimes it'll be a seventh on the turf, but they'll only lose by three quarters of a length, like it was a blanket finish. Now, you don't usually see that on the dirt, but I see plenty of that horses lose by one and a half when they came in sixth, and I'm like, this is a perfectly good start, and everyone's like, no, the horse ran sixth. People love betting ones. Uh, I, I love betting sixes when I when there's value there. Absolutely. Uh, right or wrong, it's like I think a lot of novice players at the track, when they buy their Equibase program, and they see a bunch of ones in bold. They're like, oh, well, this horse is a win machine. Well, why is it a win machine? And that's how you get paid, I think. by You get paid by beating others, beating... Sometimes it's like you want this game to have novice money. You want that novice money to return for more times than not. So by lowering take it, you might keep novices in the pool. But at, some, at the end of the day, professional players probably live partially off having good opinions and partially off some misinformed money in the pools. I 100% agree with you. Why don't we jump on to race number seven? It was going one mile. It was a state bred optional 40, non-2x. What were your thoughts in here? I know you said you had a big play. Yeah, so Big Mountain, the six. I really like this horse going into the race. Got really good back figures. Um, it has a cutback from from a two-turn mile and an eighth race to a straight mile. And if you look back at the, the two races before the nine furlong race, the, the horse ran extremely well, running fast paces at, at the one-turn mile, which is my favorite distance in racing. Yeah. The figures are on par better than every other horse in the race, and the last time, I don't know if two turns is what he loves, but he's got good numbers historically on two turns, uh, or running two turns, but he was on a dead rail that day. So I thought he was a big improve. Looking at the PPs, there, there was speed in there, but the only other speed that was really on paper was a five-horse horoscope, who I did not like. Um, I thought the horse actually ended up going off, or ends up going off at an overlay of 23 to 1, um, but I thought the outside speed trip on... A good speed horse going down on the slight cutback or true cutback going from two turns to one turn. I thought the horse was very much my biggest lean on the day outside of Mr. Buff, who I don't know if we call a lean or just a lock. So I really liked him. The other horses I did include on some other backup tickets. Uh, the one playwright uh, for Danny Gargan, he has been training extremely well. I think he's about, he's won a third of his races in the past three months. Yeah. Did I think, looking at the PPs, the horse looks like it needs a setup to win. And a lot of times when you see big numbers of final times, it's usually because the pace was fast on a true speed figure scale. And a lot of the times he was getting decent paces to run into, and the just numbers just are not as big as what I saw for the six big mountain. The other horse I thought was kind of interesting was, uh, I don't know if you call it interesting when he's 5 or 2 in the morning line, but she was smoking gun for Linda Rice. She's a very tricky trainer to figure out. I don't know if the one-turn mile is the correct distance for the horse. Looking at everything there, it's just you get some of the better connections in New York in the winter, and I thought that horse had a slight chance with a backup. At the end of the day, Big Mountain was my big play here. Going back to Joe's smoking gun, he ended up going off the favorite. A couple races back, you see that he wins the state bread allowance race in the slop. And then Rudy goes and drops him in for 25, and the horse just airs the field and pays 7-2-ish. to two -ish. Uh, To me, that is just an automatic red flag when a horse wins an allowance and then you see him in for a tag next time out. Yeah, the thing that's hard about that that I, I've learned from knowing more racetrack, or pe racetrack people, like Marshall Graham really taught me a lot about this, is sometimes 
I understand it's a red flag, but sometimes the horse has nowhere else to run. Just because of the way the condition book game is currently set up, Norris won N1X allowance that if it, they want to keep him at that level, they've got to run an N2 or find some race. Or Granted, the horse has a lot more conditions than it may seem on or show on paper here. But a lot of times that I don't usually view that as a, a total negative, just seeing as I, I've learned how the modern condition book makes it hard for horses to run back again. Craig Burnick, for a lot, for a while, he's like, yeah, I had my horses out in California, and the races just wouldn't fill. But like the race that I want to get my horses in just wouldn't fill, so we're done with California because how am I supposed to try to get a horse to break its maiden when I want it to go long on the turf and none going long on the turf races are filling? I don't know if that's the exact scenario, but it's just things like that where I make a no, I, I I'll make a circle at whatever, but do I live off of that? No. I think it was strange though too that the horse ended up going off at usually a horse like that for Rudy you'd see six to five even money and this horse was like pretty much i don't know what he was on the odds line that day but he went off at seven to two that's like dead on the board yeah the, the i think the thing about that is i'm not looking to see who else is in the race okay it was it was a seven horse race but maybe there was an even money shot that was even a bigger class drop or had some massive figure some other circumstance that i'm not seeing right now i guess that's why you didn't hold it against it but that's just one of the things that i sometimes notice don't want to make too big of an issue of um, I understand that why people do it. There's nothing worse than seeing the horse that you're single to come up dead, totally dead on the board. So mm-hmm. two to one money morning line that opens up at six to one and I think goes off at four to one. I'm just I don't have any specific example, but it's just a terrible feeling. Because I think for the a lot of times it's like the big thing in horse racing is like they knew who knew, but someone yeah. bet them and they won. Um, a lot of times it seems like they know when the horses don't win, but granted, there's a lot of times when two to five horses blow up the track. I mean, so. people, people talk about Chad Brown at Saratoga. They're like, it's just Chad Brown's world we're living in. It. Well, he has the best horses. There's predominantly more turf races now than when Todd was crushing at Saratoga, and he has all the good turf horses. So it's like, who do you think is going to win the trainer title nine times out of ten? Yeah, there's a. I, I always kind of joke whenever he knocks me out of a bet that there is a. I could do a thirty for thirty about a Duke basketball player, <laughs> change the name around to have Ch- Chad's Brown name in there, and just be like, this man has changed American turf racing for or New York turf racing forever. And it's pretty true. The one thing I had with Big Mountain that I was a little bit suspect was he was coming off back to back tops, and I know one of those races because I had discussed it with Pete when we had been on the show previously. It had been a, It was the day that he won with Dylan by six. That had been a speed-favoring track as well, and the horse was on the lead. So if you downgrade that race, and then you see the race he came right back in as the favorite, it was with a bug rider in Correa, but it just didn't seem like a recipe for success. Yep. I think the dead rail or dead inside may have had a role in that, but for me it was if you if you got a horse that blows up like that, sometimes you're going to get good value on the toe board, and the horse went off at 5-1 to one today, which I think was a great value considering he was he was 3-2 to two pretty much last out. Yeah. Um, he was he was a horse I put a good amount of my money through, and just we'll, we'll talk about the details after the race, but that's that's what I thought as my opinion. I guess race. it would be a different case if the horse ended up going off again as the favorite is what you're trying to say. Yep. Yeah. Correct. For me, I ended up – I didn't really like anybody in this race – so nine times out of ten, if I know I wasn't going to be doing a card for the podcast, I would probably have skipped this race. I ended up going with the number one playwright. I thought it was a little bit light on figures and seemed to like seconditis too much. But jumping up in class, I wasn't really too afraid of anyone in this field. So let us see if we can advance again in the pick five or if playwright can get it done for me right now. It is horoscope. 
who's away well along with Big Mountain. Big Mountain on the outside grabs the lead from Horoscope. The front two have opened up three lengths on Real Dan and Frosted Ice on the outside in fourth. Playwright now moves through down at the rail from fifth. And then we have Carthon, and Joe's Smoking Gun is the early trailer in seventh. A battle up front after a quarter in 22 and three-fifth seconds. Horoscope on the inside and Big Mountain on the outside. Now the front two have six lengths on Playwright, who has moved into third. Far outside is Frosted Ice next in fourth, followed by Carthon. Real Dan's in between horses. Joe Smoking Gun continues to trail. The opening half mile was 45 and 3. A contentious half mile here between Horoscope and Big Mountain, and the rest of them are closing in now. Here comes Frosted Ice on the outside and Playwright down towards the rail. Playwright is gaining ground right at the rail with Manny Franco. And Playwright has come on through to grab the lead. Frosted Ice is now in second. Horoscope is back running in third. And then it is Carthon in fourth as Big Mountain drops out of it. Three quarters went in one, 11 and four. And it is Playwright with a four-length lead. Then Carthon and Frosted Ice. Playwright is drifting out here in the stretch, but holding on to the lead. But Carthon is getting closer. It's Playwright in front by two. Carthon on the outside. Playwright racing erratically here through the stretch. It is Playwright holding on, and Playwright's going to get to the finish first. Playwright over Carthon. Farther back, Frosted Ice was third. And Playwright gets it done, paying $7.50 with an 80 buyer. What are your thoughts and opinions coming back here, Eric? For a track that I thought was speed favoring all day, the one horse that I really like gets hooked up in a mass, massive speed duel and ends up just running up the track beat by 51 lengths. I think the opening quarter is 22 and 4 or something like that. Mm-hmm. This aqueduct track this winter has been extremely slow. So the kind of the second I saw that when I was watching the race, I knew it was dead right away. Sometimes hooking up with a what I consider cheap speed is fine because guess what? Um, Sometimes those horses can stay on, but that was not the case at all today. You know, it's completely wrong. Playwright really came from off a lead, and you were right. I had the horse as a backup. Did I, did I want the horse to win? No. But I moved on in advance to see uh, Will Pays for the final leg with Mr. Buff winning. It was weird, too, because two of the horses were eased. Joe Smoking Gun and Big Mountain were both eased in this race, so now you're down to kind of almost a five-horse five horse field with the scratch of the number two Durkin's call. So it made a really weird pace analysis out of it. I mean, Manny Franco is on fire at this point in the card and it just seems like everything he's touching is turning to gold. Yeah. I think he, uh, I think he's a solid rider. Sometimes I think sometimes the, the rides you see out of him are you're like, what was he doing? Um, he's got an excellent agent. He's learned from one of the best in angel Cordero, but, mm-hmm. um, there's days he'll catch fire in New York and, it's hard to stop a guy, like we talked about before, but sometimes when a guy catches fire, figures out a track for his out how to ride that day, that it's hard to beat a guy sometimes. That's where you see the five and six win days. Are you at all interested in betting Big Mountain back out of this race? If the horse is beat by 10 lengths, probably. But the fact that he was beaten by 51 lengths, probably a lot was taken out of him in this race. I don't know. We'll see what happens next with him. Uh, I think I'm going to... I've had him on my watch list before, so I think we'll keep him on my watch list, um, see where he comes up next and go from there. Something I hadn't asked before, knowing that you're out of the school of the Matias brothers, the buyer parts and stuff like that, do you pay attention to that at all? So this one was a 90, and Playwright came out and ran an 80, so it was just a much weaker race, it seemed, for this class level. I do not really pay attention to that at all. For pars and stuff like that, I haven't used DRF 
PPs in a while. Um, mm-hmm. I not a, the, the stuff I used it doesn't necessarily have pars on there. Um, I kind of just more of because the thing that's kind of back to what I was talking about before is that there are so like all they're inventing new race conditions every day, and sometimes how do they really have a good par for it? Then there's other thing with buyers who I fully agree with buyers just because they're at some point they seem like more of an ability figure than a true speed figure. That's a whole different hole to go down, but that's kind of my answer for no. Fair enough. What do you say, Eric? We get into the last race that we're going to go over. It was race number nine at Aqueduct. It was one mile. It was a state-bred Philly maiden claiming race. Kind of a tough one for me. Didn't really know where to go in here. What about you? I was the same way. On my pick five tickets, I ended up using seven horses in this race. I thought it was wide open. At the end of the day, it was not necessarily wide open. Once again, George Weaver has a has a favorite in this race, and I thought it was a lot more wide open than it looked, but we can get into it. Uh, the horses I used, uh, two Miz in the Mark, the first-time starter for the Chitino Barn. It's kind of hard at this time of the year when... Granted, our mating claimer is a horse that you're really looking for clocker information for, but one of the nice things about Saratoga in the summer is that you're going to get clocker information. Um, are the grades a thing you want to look at sometimes, but it's also you want to see do the horse, like the comments of the horse do it easily, who is he working with. Mm-hmm. So it's hard at this time of the year to kind of see. Um, you kind of have to guess on those horses and not I thinking it was being an, an open race and just looking at times of the workouts did i think the horse was going to win no but at the end of the day i wouldn't i wouldn't have been surprised if the horse won next horse i use is wicked keisha uh for the prasad barn um i think some of the races for that horse were if you go three back the the, the horse had a good race finished beaten half length for the for the win um i just thought when I, the race is a little more wide open do i want to bet randy prasad at eight to one six to one whatever he was not really when I don't think there's a lot much else in the race, and I think the horse actually ran a couple decent races mm-hmm. to use, because a lot of times, for the same reason I just said that, uh, do I want to bet that guy six eight to one? A lot of other people are probably thinking the same exact thing. Next horse is Empress Luciana the four Luciana. Well, sorry if I offended anyone by my pronunciation. Uh, for the Barker Barn, I thought this race is kind of wide open. The horse has run some okay races. Is the horse fast? No, but I feel like the numbers from a pace point of view. The, horse kind of runs a little evenly every time like doesn't really speed up doesn't slow down that much so sometimes i find it to be an interesting little angle if you can get good pace figures on this next one is the broadway angel for the pletcher barn this horse was a 72 on the morning line and up going off at 92 sorry for ruining that ahead of time but a lot of times you see pletcher in new york in the winter in a maiden in a maiden claiming race the horse started off in main claiming races so Probably wasn't a killer, but the first few races a horse has ran in its career, it's, it was on dead rails both times. And those can be pretty profitable angles. Um, the horse, first race it ever ran, it finished second, beaten six lengths. But knowing that it was on the bad part of the track, it's definitely an upgrade for the next time. Um, horse ended up on another dead rail and two sloppy tracks. So kind of back to what I said initially, maybe if it gets back on a fast track, it mm-hmm. has a better chance to run. It's got one of the better riders in New York at this time of the year on on the horse just boards uh, probably another bad pronunciation for george weaver in west point this horse actually ran in the final mandatory race or the sorry the, the aqueduct mandatory race for the final table at the nhc uh, there's two weaver horses in the race and this is the one that i thought was the worst of the two weaver horses on that day so uh running back at the same level 
two weeks later. Did I love the horse? No. Did have a lot of excuses at time for? Maybe. I don't know. I don't think so. The pace was a little fast compared to the final figure. I was not running to reloading my ADW to bet this horse. Uh, the next horse I use was Die Town Baby, uh, the nine from Mark Cassie. Once again, just I thought those races kind of wide open. This horse might have been able to get loose face off some of the prior figures. Um, has ran okay in the dirt in his career. It's a hard race. Um, do I want to bet Mac, Mark Cassie on the dirt at Aquarec in the winter? Not really, but sometimes if you think a race is open, a lot of other people probably have the same exact idea, and I used him there. And the horse I actually thought was going to go off favored, um, the 11 just stay home for Linda Rice. Probably had some excuses first time out. Is Linda Rice always firing first time out? No. I, I think in her career she's, I think uh, rough numbers, I want to say she's about 10, 10 to 12% for, with first time starters. That sounds about right. But for, for her career, I want to say she's around a 20% trainer. She's very, very tricky. She's one of the trickiest trainers to, to figure out what are the horses going to run or not. Not that I'm saying she's cheating, but it's just, I think she is a trainer. If you want to talk about the barn intention, she's probably one of the biggest ones out there for barn intention. Also probably one of the trainers that have the most number of scratches out there. But I thought this horse broke poorly. It's first race out ran kind of evenly was the horse. Maybe push was a learning race. Like they say races are five workouts or three. I don't know the number, but maybe the horse learned something from its first time going from 40,000 to 25,000. I thought the horse uh, maybe had a chance to move up here. I think that when you're first teaching someone angles at Naira tracks, Linda Rice second time out is probably one of the top ones I'll teach somebody not to really bet her or take put much money on her first time out and really look to, even though a lot of them come back at short prices, there's still some horses that go off at seven to two, four to one second time out and they win by three or four lengths and everyone's like, well, that was easy way to make money. She's a tricky one. Um, it'll be interesting to see with her impending hearing about um, paying to play. Um, what happens to her it's to be fair she's one of i think she's a very very good trainer it's good to see women trainers succeeding out there and hopefully that that i don't want to have an opinion on this but for i think for the betterment of the sport and trying to get more more females involved at a high level she's definitely a good example out there or i don't want to say a good example but she's someone that you take your daughter to the track and you see hey she's a woman a woman leading her in the winter circle it's it's good for i think it's good for the game um so it'll be interesting to see what happens with her. This race was so bizarre to me. You just didn't really know where to go. I didn't want to end up on the George Weaver horse, but just seemed like he was coming out of red fraction races on time form. The one second he had was uh, the one second that she had was she was on the lead in the muddy off the turf race. It just seemed like she was going to get the lead. And the way Manny had been riding that day, it just seemed like not like a lone a single. You still needed a bunch of other horses. The 11 second time out. I thought a little bit, even this, this too, the the first time starter, what exactly are you looking for when you see first time starters? Is there a certain like, okay, got to check the sire trainer stats workouts, or are you just looking at other stuff? So a lot of times it's trainer stats and sometimes breeding. Do you see that the horse, I think it's a little more relevant to two year olds, but you can kind of see, do, do, if the mares dropped any other foals, just do the horses win as two year olds, early three year olds, things like that. Um, there's ways to look it up. It's, it's a little labor intensive, but if you're really interested in a horse, um, you can see one thing I, I always find interesting is you can look at sales numbers. Is this a great way to do it? But if you see, uh, for example, like one of the hottest sires now is Constitution. I don't know what his Kofefi was just announced to be bred to him. I want to say is I, I don't I don't sorry if I, I'm wrong, but just say his 
Sire fee is $10,000 right now. It's likely going to go up in the future, but when you see one of his horses sell for $700,000, someone in Bloodstock saw something right with the horse. It wasn't necessarily that he was by Constellation. Probably not. It was probably more that they saw this horse and were like, wow, this is a very appealing specimen. And sometimes that's always interesting. But when you get homebreds, it's a little harder, but then you can kind of work, go off works. Work reports, they're necessarily evil, I think, in horse racing, but the if you can get comments off of them, I think clockers might not give the best grades. You're going to look at different clocker reports, and they're going to give different grades. But I think at the end of the day, they know how to watch horse flesh mm-hmm. a lot better than I do. Am I good for looking at physicality of horses? Absolutely not. I'm terrible at that. The number of times they actually ever watch a post-braid is few and far between. And when you listen to people that know what they're talking about with horses, sometimes they think they're... Uh, Sometimes they can cash that way. I think he's twenty twenty five thousand. I could be wrong as well. I think he's a little bit more than that. We had the whole blow up on Twitter today. How people are upset that so many horses are retiring, and then the Golden Gate track announcer Matt Derman just listed how many good horses we still have in training. It's tough to. It's a tough thing to yeah, see. The thing is, I don't know if they were good horses before. Are they the Are they good horses? Or are they the best horses that are remaining? Which is probably more true on that fact. For... So, Constitution, $40,000 for 2020. So, I don't know what he was before, maybe 2025, like you said, yeah. but that's a big jump yeah. in the sire world. Absolutely. Uh, not to get too far off the beaten track. For me, I ended up just passing this race. I couldn't really bring myself to bet the eight. That probably would have been my top pick if I was doing an analysis or anything. You ended up on all these other horses. When you get to a a finishing leg and you know it's been pretty chalky. Obviously you weren't were you, you weren't gonna try and hedge here. What were your thoughts? Was there anything else or was it just kinda like the chips have fallen where they are and let's see what happens? And chips have fallen where they are, let's see what happens. I think a couple horses would have won me back everything I bet into the sequence, but um at some point you just gotta look at it, hey I got beat, I was wrong, but I still got some money back, kinda like a rebate. Mm-hmm. There's a rebate that had a lot more risk involved, but um yeah, it was just, it was, let's see what happens. And I, the one thing I will say with this was I was looking at this from a pick five point of view when I made it. So do I, am I always like, if I see a jock on fire, do I always know that? But the thing that's hard about pick five is that Manny Franco won three races in this pick five sequence. I think three, right? Yep. Did I know he was going all three of those five? No. I knew he won two or whatever it was before the sequence started. That's what's hard when you're playing multis is that a lot can change track condition and change horses can scratch and, don't get me start on the, the North America scratch rules, but it's always hard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let us see if Eric can get his pick five across the wire here in the ninth at Aqueduct right now. And they're off. Bit of a bobble there for number eight day board right there at the start. And it was a slow beginning for Wicked Kaisha who trails the field. Just stay home from the extreme outside. Day board now quickly moves up. And DeBoard has taken the lead. Just Stay Home is running in second. Stytown Baby is next in third. Onto Cincinnati runs in fourth. Playboy's pitch on the extreme outside in fifth. Then it's Little Morning Star in sixth. Broadway Angel is in seventh. Miz in the mark down at the rail runs in eighth. Empress Luciana on the outside is ninth. At the back are She's Euphoric and Wicked Kaisha. First quarter, 24 seconds. It's DeBoard with the lead here by a length. Stytown Baby. 
and just stay home. They are right together, second and third. Then big long shot onto Cincinnati in fourth. Little Morning Star is moving up, and on the outside, Empress Luciana is gaining ground. As they race around the far turn, the half went in 48 and two. It is still Debord, the one to catch here. She leads by a length. Stytown Baby in second. Just Stay Home is in third, almost three lengths. Back to Empress Luciana, who's taken fourth. Little Morning Star down at the rail. Now, Wicked Kaisha begins to pick it up on the outside, but still six or seven lengths from a front-running Debord, who has the lead. Debord in front, and she's opened up now. It is Debord in front by six lengths. Empress Luciana down towards the rail. Stytown Baby, Wicked Kaisha, and on the outside is the first-time starter, Mizzen the Mark. But it's been a super Saturday for Manny Franco. Win number five, Dayboard. Blew them away in the nightcap. And the number eight, Dayboard, gets it done paying $5 with a 45 buyer. What did you think about this race? I thought it was not a race where you want a lot of horses out of it. Um, there may be some rundacks, but at first glance, not really. Um, it, was, it was a hard day at Aqueduct where it, the races are extremely strung out, but yeah, I, I don't want much out of this race. And going forward, I, I got beat overall. For my, I won the pick five, but I lost overall. Will I still take chances like this in multi-race bets? Absolutely, because when your effective takeout is zero or or player's edge, I'm still gonna I'm gonna bet them because over time, I think my opinion is better than zero percent compared to everyone else out there. Do you think or, there? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Do you think there was a learning? Like, would you have done anything differently, knowing that you still hit the wager but lost money? Was there any way you could construct the bet, even though it was so chalky, to actually end up making no. money? No. I, 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 yes, there's certain things they may have done slightly different, but for the most part, I bet who I liked, and it just didn't fall the way I wanted to. What I spread as much in, t in some of these races, maybe not. But I think what I did, I'd probably do it again. Um, and a lot of times, you bet you got a bet with conviction and. I don't know if I was fully convinced this is the best bet, but when it's a good equity situation, I think I had a, a decent path. If, if a couple of races go differently, it could be talking about a could be a five-figure score if it spreads out a little more. My big opinion wins in the um, in the in the seventh race. It's, it could be a completely different day. Agree with you on that. Now on this day, I think the highest win was nine sixty. On days like this, is it just you're not much of a grinder. You're more of a, you know, bet a little to like, you know, hit that nice little score. Are these I'll days tougher for you? I'll grind sometimes too. Um, I've got no problem. Like a day at Hawthorne where it's nine sixty horses. If I can hook up a couple of those, I've got no issue with it. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of times when I'm betting those three, two, three, four to one horses, it's just because I think they're going to win. Not because I think there's six other horses that have enough value or have a chance to win. Very Interesting. That's all the time we have for it tonight, Eric. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, Twitter, Eric underscore Bialik, E R I C underscore B I A L E K. I think that's my Twitter handle. Yeah, reach out to me. Um, it, it's kind of been cool having people reach out to me from the SNHC run. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've known Pete and Jonathan for a while. I've been on the show a couple times. And now I think I get a little more notoriety. Um, yeah, the one thing for me is like the one thing that really probably changed. Horse racing mirrors getting rebates, and I think a lot of people don't realize you can get rebates. You just have to talk to people that get them or find out where to get them, reach out to me, ask me about them. Um, 
Like at the end of the day, AEW is in their best interest to keep you coming back as a customer. I think horse racing sometimes looks at the, the short term for getting max dollars possible, but sometimes you're going to lose fans that way or lose betters that way. And at the end of the day, this is a gambling game. So the more betters that stay in this game, the better for the long-term health of the game. Like for me, I went from the year I got out of college from going betting, taking change out of my car to go bet at the, at the OTV to betting probably five times. I did what I started out of college, more than five times. 10 times, maybe eight times. I don't know. From what I bet first year out of college, seven years out of college now. Some of that duty getting a small rebate, but um, some of it becoming a better player. But it all, at the end of the day, it all adds up. And I think you just have to look out. Um, you got to look out for your best interest if you want to take this as a serious gambling game. I, I try to use it to supplement, supplement my income. Um, could I do this full time? Probably not. It, I got the utmost respect for guys who can do this professionally because it is very, very hard. Mm-hmm. A lot of variance. It's a big grind. More power to them, but I probably could have never do it in the capacity I do it now. I just I would need to change the way I play from being a lot more horizontal, a lot more vertical. Am I a great vertical better? No, but sometimes I've got great vertical scores. Golfstream, when they had the pick five carryover last week, um, ended up losing on the five of five. They still have some four or five. But the biggest bet for me that day was a... A trifecta in one of the races where I cash out for way more than than I was. I think even the pick five paid. So um, sometimes, yeah, I'm not the best at it, but you can figure out how to have a good day sometimes. And a couple of good days is all you need a year to to really have a, a winning year. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me. I hope to have you back on the show. I hope to see you out at Saratoga this year, buy you a beer, and definitely chat some wagering strategy. Yeah, I I think uh, I think the the trips in the cards this year didn't fell through last year. I think this year, uh, not as many weddings. And, um, I guess I got a good reason to go now that I've got no excuse for like, Oh, it's an expensive trip for a short weekend or whatever. Right. It's always fun. Um, one of the highlights of my year, every time I get up there. Appreciate your time so much, Eric. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to this show. And my special guest, Eric Bilek. This show has been a production of in the money media in the money media's present is Peter Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.